Hello, this is Michael Zuber, and I wanted to thank you for choosing to spend a little time with One Rental at a Time. My life's mission is to help investors close 1 million rental properties. In order to tackle this crazy goal, I will need your help. If you like this episode or any of the content we produce, please share it on social media. If you get one of my books or perhaps one of our 500 cards, please take a selfie and tag One Rental at a Time. Now on with the show. I live next to a Navy base, so they start playing music at 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, Dion, uh, I think we are live. Folks, let us let us know in the comments of below. I live next to a Navy. You can see us. I think we are live. We're giving this a shot. My good friend Dion has agreed to come on and do a live stream, folks. We have some topics prepared, but of course, we want to hear from you. If you have questions about real estate, you want to say hi to one of us, whatever's on your mind, uh, we are going to be here for an hour. Uh, as I have a 9 a.m. commitment to record some more great content for you all. Uh, so, Dion, how you doing, man? Howdy. I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I like the live streams. Uh, two things to point out whenever we do a live stream. The first is YouTube really doesn't start pushing out lives until about the 30-minute mark, so I think an hour is a perfect time length. And second, the best thing with live streams is, as content creators, we talk about what we want to. Yeah. Right? And every now and then a question will get asked enough times to where we know to make a video on that topic. But during these lives, somebody's going to ask a question that's going to spark the conversation between us that makes sense to somebody watching and they make the next move. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, one of the things I want to do here in, you know, until we get those questions is I'm going to go to the Facebook group. That's part of our course, how to get started one rental at a time and just go through some of the top or so I guess the latest questions, we got this one, for, I'll just use first names, Angelina. Angelina was asking us, uh, Dion and others, does anyone self-manage out-of-state rentals? Um, what do you think about that question? So anytime out-of-state investing comes up, I think of Millennial Mike. He self-manages locally for his duplex, but he property manages at a distance, <clears throat> uses property management. If I was going to invest at a distance, I would also have property management. The exception is if you start a real estate portfolio and you build the systems, you develop the relationships with contractors, handymen, you know the areas, and then you move out of the area, it's probably not as difficult to self-manage in that scenario. But self-managing at a great distance in, in another state where you don't have any of those systems and you don't know the markets is going to be challenging. Yeah. It's going to be expensive. It doesn't mean it's impossible though. Yeah, actually we got a response. Again, I'll just use first names. Courtney. Courtney lives in the Las Vegas. Hey, shout out Courtney. We're going to be neighbors soon, I think. Uh, she self-manages 11 rentals in Florida. So uh, shout out Courtney for making it happen in Florida. I'm trying to see if she has any more further, further details. But yeah, we actually got a couple of people. I self-manage one in Texas. This is Christian and one in Alabama. So it's certainly possible, but like you and I have talked about everything out of state. It's the team, team, team. I think a lot of people do out of state. They look at the deal, then the market, then the team. And if you heard my rant, it's team first, market second, deal third. So I just recently moved into kind of a new market, you know, 30 minutes past where I had been before in a market I don't have those relationships. One of the first priorities for me was building a list of the electricians and plumbers in the area that have 
Electrician, I want seven day emergency service and plumber, I want 24 hour emergency service. So I have that list pre-built of people I can call when there's an issue. Second, I went to the Thumbtack app, right? It's where I find contractors. It's a great place to get quotes, read reviews, but I hired a couple of handymen for small tasks so that I can interact with them on, on something small to see what's their communication style like. How do I think they'll interact with tenants? Once we build a relationship of trust, if, if somebody is investing with property management, they're, they're the most important relationship. If you are self-managing, whether it's local or at a distance, your handymen are your most important relationship. The more Agreed. calls they take, the more trust you have in them that they can actually respond and have a positive interaction with tenants, the more likely you are to sit back and want to add units. Yeah. Another question we got from, again, if you buy the course, how to get started one rinse at a time, you join this amazing Facebook group. Uh, the shout out, Michael. Michael's asking, hey, I'm currently unhappy with my PM, property manager, and looking to switch to self-management. Um, what are your thoughts on self-managing for the first time? Dion, this is something you do. So my first question, I think, to Michael would be, how many units do you have? How many are you taking on all at once? What system was the property management using? Because if they had an online portal and you have to go through all of your tenants and switch that over, be I ready it's for one. that. So it's if it's one. one, absolutely. If it was... I think 20 or less. Absolutely. If it was 20 or more, I would probably make a staged exit. Right. Right. Yeah. Kind of like I'm going to Hemlane. I had used apartments.com and cozy for years and now I'm using Hemlane as property management software. So I would, I would recommend that to anybody self-managing. You can use the code one rental at a time to get 20% off your first year. So you go. The, the reason I'm doing this is I want to be able to travel more and I can have those three tiered options. So whenever I'm completely out of country and I need to have a leasing agent go sign something, I can step up for that month to the highest tier, get that process handled, and then step down to the, the one that I like the price of. But, and I'll let you get to that awesome looking super chat here in just a second. I'll wrap this up. Mm -hmm. With Hemlane, I didn't go to my tenants and say, all of you are now in Hemlane, mm -hmm. right? I have a tenant that's a, a little older than me has a checkbook, a flip phone, yeah. no interwebs, right? I'm not going to yeah. say you need to have the internet installed. You need to go to an online portal. She gives me a stack of six checks for the next six months every time I talk to her. Oh, wow. um, so, but new tenants and tenant turnovers, new properties acquired are going to be immediately on Hemlane and I'm going to cycle to where eventually they'll all be on there. Yeah, I think I think Hemlane is the right answer for self-managers. The more and more I dig into it, um, the more and more it feels like the right answer is people know on my channel know we are going to go to Vegas here very shortly. There is a very good chance, given I'm a one rental at a time guy, that I will be picking up at least one rental there as I learn the market. Uh, and I will certainly be putting that one into Hemlane to give that self-management a shot. And obviously leaning on you and Matt and Mike uh, for all the coaching, because I have not managed one ever. So this would be very, very different. So folks, we're going to go to a super chat. If you want to get our attention and get your question answered, super chat is a great way to do it. JB, this is the question you asked. If you, Mike, if you were 40 again and a professional full-time worker and real estate investor full-time for long-term rentals, where would you live for the next five years and why? Texas, Florida, Phoenix, other, or would it be the San Francisco Bay Area again? Wow, a lot in that question. So the first thing I would be thinking about is um, my day job income, because again, that's how I fed my machine. Right. So work, li working and living in the Bay area, uh, ridiculously expensive as, as everyone should know. 
but it also provides you with some pretty significant opportunities. Um, as a sales professional, uh, one of the reasons I was able to rise in the ranks so quickly, not only being very good at what I did, but also I was local. I lived in the Bay, right? Mountain View is right in the heart. So I was able to get executive and senior executive positions because I was able to meet with product marketing and engineering. I didn't have to fly in. A lot of sales executives try to do it from Raleigh or you know, you know, uh, you know, other other places, and it just becomes a scheduling nightmare, right? You just you just can't be here all the time when there's emergencies. So again, I don't know any different. Uh, I know for a fact that I rose in the ranks higher when by rising in the ranks higher means you got bigger OTEs, bigger stock grants, your opportunity for upside was much greater. So for all intents and purposes, I would probably still live in the Bay Area. Uh, because again, my optionality by going somewhere else, I think would be capped. The other thing that really, again, and I go back to this all the time is, is Olivia and I did not increase our standard of living for 15 years. Uh, one of the things that is a detriment in the Bay Area is you try to keep up with the Joneses. And what that means is I worked with people that were having, you know, similar success that I was as far as income. But then they got the bigger house. Then they got the third car. Then they got the vacation home. Then they, then they got, then they got, then they got. And Olivia and I did none of that. So by staying in the Bay Area, being comfortable with people making fun of us, frankly, because again, we live, we still live in a condo. I mean, geez, I mean, with where we are at net worth and income wise, we don't have to live in a condo, but we do. Um, that was by choice. So I, you know, I would probably live where I could maximize my income and then I would invest somewhere. So I think that I want to make sure I got all parts of his segments. Uh, Dion, any thoughts on all that? Well, he followed up with same question for me, for you. I think if you were, he said 40, starting over where would you live i think you would incorporate house hacking if you were back to being 40 and starting and didn't have your portfolio mm -hmm. i think you've mentioned that a couple of times so i would yep. i would do the same if i was starting portfolio over at 40 they have an income they said here of 165 to 200 when i was 40 i was making 17 dollars an hour mm -hmm. so it was a significant change in the, the incomes uh, i wouldn't pick any of the places he named i would still pick washington state i've looked at the entire country and i have this survivalist mentality. It's the only part of the country that everything isn't trying to kill you. No hurricanes, no tornadoes, no earthquakes, no water shortages. Um, so I would still pick here. I think that the price of properties lines up with my timeline of reaching financial freedom in 10 years or less. Uh, <clears throat> so that would be the same here. I, I would use the same strategy. We actually just made a video, I think, on your channel that should be coming out I think today on today, I think at a hundred thousand dollars and you were starting over, what would you do? We, we really break it down on exactly what we would do. Um, and it is for the first five years. I like the way JB put the question. It's, it's for five years. That's before the income snowball kicks in when everything mm -hmm. kind of moves slow, the house hack would definitely exist for that. I just actually moved into my third house hack ever. So uh, that's why I'm in a, in a room that doesn't have floors yet. <laughs> so. Yeah. So JB, thank you very much for the super chat. Again, if you want to get questions from Dean and I just throw one of those in there and we will do our best to get to it. Uh, the other thing I thought I would share with folks is uh, obviously I've shared on this channel that Olivia and I are in contract to buy a home. And I, I got an interesting email from underwriting, right? So uh, underwriting asked us, <laughs> this one's for you, Dion. Uh, 
basically, how can you assure us that your income won't go down when you move out of state? They're basically saying, hey, you manage your portfolio from in-state. Uh, how do you know the income is going to be as good when you're out of state? So my answer was pretty clear, but uh, just, just FYI, uh, Dion, if you're going to go try to get a loan and move out of state, they're going to ask you, how the heck are you going to keep the income up? Yeah. So it, it, so for you, a very easy answer, I think, of when's the last time you had to go to a property? Exactly. Okay. Well, good news, folks. I haven't been there in two years. <laughs> right. So uh, my answer would take a little more uh, nuance, longer answering because have to go to a property five plus years. I've gone to a property because sometimes I want to interact with the tenant, but I would probably have to incorporate if I was going to be gone permanently property management of some level. Uh, I, I probably could do it self, but that would incur more costs. Handyman would be handling every issue that came up. I would have the higher cost of the third tier of Hemling when I did leasing changeovers. So for me, it's your income pad beyond, so financial independence is when you don't have to work, right? You can kind of choose whatever job you want. Financial freedom is when you don't have to look at price tags. And that pad is large enough to where even if it did de it decrease, the lenders would still think I'm bankable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, my answer was exactly that. It was basically, we've had property management day one. Oh, by the way, Fresno's two and a half hours. I actually said three hours away. Uh, from where we live. We haven't been there. We have the only time we go there is to buy another deal. We haven't interacted with tenants in 20 years. So it was it was a rather interesting. But I did think it was it, I guess it was a good question by underwriting, right? Underwriting is looking at our income statement, looking at all, you know, the big number at the bottom and going, how do we make sure that stays solid? But I I I did chuckle when I got that request to write write a couple of paragraphs. That was pretty funny. Uh, I got a question from, uh, I think it was Matt. Let me make sure. Yeah, Matt, between Section 8 and market rent properties, which do you like better? I'll let you go first, Dion. I like Section 8 exactly 33% as much as I like market. Because my goal is to try to keep one-third of my units in the Section 8 program, one-third with military, and one-third with working or retired. That's my, my actual breakdown preference. There are some markets where Section 8 pays more than market. Yeah. For Mine, sure. uh, for single family right now, I'm getting probably 5% less than market. Mm -hmm. And that's with an existing tenant where I binder strategy the housing authority to get it there. That's how close mm -hmm. it got. Uh, so a new tenant with Section 8, uh, I would probably get market. Um, I screen exactly the same, right? So the... The source of in, the payment for the tenant doesn't determine the type of tenant, the property. Correct. Does. You have a property in a war zone, you're going to get war zone tenants. If you have a property that you take good care of, it's in a good neighborhood. I have Section 8 tenants with an 830 credit score. It's like 831. Mm -hmm. And I have uh, in, uh, what you call inherited tenants when you buy a property and they have 600 credit scores. And they're both great tenants. But when I screen for a new tenant... It's a 700 minimum credit score, whether it's Section 8 or not. It's no evictions ever, no matter what the source. I don't look at income, so Section 8 to non-Section 8 is no different for me. Um, I'm trying to think of my biggest problem tenants have never been my Section 8 tenants or my military tenants, because with military, you have a chain of command to call when you have an issue. My brother is experiencing that right now, so I'm walking him through how awesome that is to have somebody to call. And with Section 8, you have the housing authority that also inspects the property, also has somebody that you can complain to if there's an issue. And the 
tenants have a benefit they don't want to lose, right? Yeah. But I also like to have market because the housing authority could have a prolonged government shutdown or a change in legislation, and I don't want the whole entire portfolio impacted. So diversification of tenant types is important. Yeah. So when I get this question all the time, um, you know, my short answer is uh, if I had to pick one, I would choose section eight. It's just kind of where I wanted to build my portfolio. Every unit I have is available to section eight because I was housing uh, impacted when I was growing up. So I remember that. And uh, but when I step back and look at the money, I would tell you and again, I've looked at this because I've done the math. Single family homes, mathematically speaking, section eight is better. And why are they better? They stay longer. They take better care of the property because they don't they don't want to lose a home. The last thing a Section 8 tenant will want to do is go back to an apartment. So I have seen in my example of 22 years, Section 8 tenants take better care of homes, single family homes uh, than cash tenants. Just what it is, what it is. If you go back to my apartments and specifically apartments that are very tight together, um, cash tenants are better because again, the Section 8 tenants always trying to get to that home. Um, so again, you know, with that one caveat, but at the end of the day, I don't, to me, where the income comes from is irrelevant. Um, first person that matches our tenant criteria, you know, gets a yes answer. Um, yep. Uh, from dinner recipes for two. Oh, cute. Uh, are you adding EV charging to any of your properties? Dion, you're adding EV, you know, Tesla charges anywhere? <laughs> Um, I'm going to try not to be sarcastic. No. Um, there, I, I don't know if it's the level of income of the rentals. I, I prefer class C neighborhoods. Of all of the people that I know, Cody, Cody and Christian, mm -hmm. I believe is the only person I personally interact with that owns an EV. Mm. Right. So none of my tenants do. None of them want to. None of them would, it's not, there's not enough charging stations away from your homes. There is a requirement, there's legislation, I think if you're adding a multi-unit of a certain number in Washington mm -hmm. state that you are required to add EV uh, mm -hmm. charging. I think our friend Julie has a sixplex and she talked about adding them for that, but none mm -hmm. of my properties have them. I have no intention of adding them. Um, I think EV technology is going to change in the next couple of years where it can charge from 220 or 110 just overnight in your yard and so people spending four to six thousand dollars or whatever it is now to, to, to add a charging station uh, might be overdoing it yeah my answer is no i mean I, I, unless it's going to get me more rent and uh given where i am renting i don't i don't see it i've never even considered it never even thought about it um but again, if you're renting in San Francisco, if you're a landlord in San Francisco or Palo Alto or something, probably makes a lot of sense. But uh, certainly, certainly not doing it in my market. But let's let's take that topic and switch it to another question. How do you feel about garbage disposals in your rentals? So, so I'm fifty percent septic. I'm actually now I'm forty percent septic, sixty percent sewer. Right okay. on septic, never. I wouldn't add it possibly if I lived there because I'd have control, but even then, no, because I'd plan on moving out eventually. On sewer, I have them. I had a tenant uh, who requested one. We uh, made a minor rent adjustment and I added it. It's, it's, it's never been a problem. 
Uh, I have a quick Dion talk education on where the reset button is on them. But uh, so how many units do I have with garbage disposals over, over about half? I've had two tenants reach out in a decade and needed to push the reset button. I've not replaced any. I did know that when I installed one, you hook a hose. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not the, the handy guy, right? So I was in the beginning of this, by within the five years, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this myself. I'm going to find all the things and put in there. When you get the garbage disposal, there's a stop that stops the water from going to where I think the dishwasher connection right. would be. Right. And it isn't obvious. It's like a small metal plate and you can install it with that still in place and wonder for two days why it doesn't work. And then your brother comes over and makes you feel like an idiot because he fixes it in five seconds. <laughs> That's how I that love brothers. There you go. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I added garbage disposals about, I think I've talked about this story eight or nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago now. And um, man, they did not last. I don't think they lasted six months. I think I put them in a fourplex and I ripped them out. Uh, the number of service calls we got. Wow was retarded i mean it's just crazy right how many people were putting stuff down there and it's just nope i will never do that again never put garbage disposals in fact i bought a couple units with garbage disposals and during the remodel i ripped them out so, uh, so, so in very my, anti in my leases it's a 200 dollars service call for garbage disposal if it's something they put in it yeah i have not had any there you go so. there you go very cool uh, we got a question about Section 8 since we're on this for Matt. Uh, I kind of netted out here. Basically, I think he's saying, hey, Section 8 pays up to 2400 Why is this particular house only getting $1,400? Uh, you want to talk about that? So there's a weird equation that they use unique to each tenant cool. on what they will qualify for and what they will pay. The, the What the rent was when you put the tenant in place. Are you hit by rent control? Uh, th there is a human being that it was working for the housing authority that can approve the rent. So you have, here's what the federal says you can pay up to if yep. there's a shortage. So somebody has determined that there's a shortage, they can have a 10% variance to go above that. So it sounds like an exact science, but it's not because each person qualifies for different things, has the income to do certain things. They have, they still have to qualify based on that portion that they're going to be paying. Um, so I had a, an email from my housing authority saying they would only pay 1800 That was the most. And for a, 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 a unit in an area, I used the binder strategy all through email. So I didn't go and meet the counselor. I did the work for them. You need to make it as easy for the person making the determination as you can. I found comps at 23, 2400 said, look, this is what I'm finding in the area. I'm only going to 2200. And uh, if here's, here's my justification so that the person can take that information if their boss says, why did you do this? They go, well, look, at the, here's the comps I found. They don't have to say it was from you. You did the work for them. So if you know that rents are a certain amount, show them, find the comps. And remember, Section 8 only looks at bedroom count, not square footage, not hot tub, not parking, not garage, not den, bonus, family room. None of that matters except bedroom count. And asked to be a legal qualified bedroom with all the criteria that they say. So it can't be a place where somebody can sleep that doesn't have a closet. Right? It has to have everything that they call to make it a bedroom. Do the work for them, and you might have a better shot at getting the rent closer to where you want it. Yeah, at the end of the day, 2400 in this example is the maximum they will pay. 
uh, each applicant will go through a evaluation and they will spit out some number uh, as the landlord. So I've gone through this probably a thousand times, certainly 500 times. Like we get a section eight tenant, they apply, we accept them. It takes a couple of days for section eight to come back. Cause again, the tenant will say, Hey, I will give you in this example, 2,400. The tenant doesn't know. So section eight will spit, at least in Fresno, this is what happens. We, they submit their paperwork. Section eight will come back and say, let's just make it up. We'll pay 2250. At that point, I could say yes. I could say no, or I could give them information. Right. So at that point, I could say, sorry, Mr. And Mrs. Tenant, I won't accept 2250. The rent is 24. That is an option. Or you could go back and say, no, it's 2400. Here's like you say, a deal packet. And most of the time, you will get something above 2250. You probably won't get 2400 because they want to feel like they got you for something. Um, but yeah, it, it is certainly a process. Let's see other questions that came through. People like your diversification strategy. Oh, 1400 is rent is non-section eight. Oh, there you go. So, oh, how about that question? All right, Dion, you're buying a you're buying a property. Existing rents fourteen hundred. You've done your analysis. We'll, we'll shout out Matt the lumberjack. He has a rent box, right? Uh, and let's just say your rent box says it's twenty four hundred. Because you've done that, you might be willing to pay a little bit more, right? This is exactly where the binder strategy comes from. Exactly. These are the properties that I hunt for. I look for the property where the tenant is below area average rents. Other investors, a lot of investors won't pounce on it. They'll they'll look at what is, this was a bigger pockets thing for a long time. They said, don't look at what you project rents to. And I agree with them when they say, don't look at pro forma because pro forma means made up BS. Mm -hmm. But existing tenant rents, what the first thing you wanna do is look at how long are the existing leases? Are you held to 1400 for the next 12 months? Right. Now that becomes a big factor. If it's month to month or a couple of months, not so much. Area average rents set rents, not what the person was paying last year. Is it a rent controlled area? Does this property fall under the guidelines of rent control? An example is in California. If you're buying a single family house or a duplex and it's in your own name, it's not rent controlled. If it's in an LLC, it's rent controlled. If you have more units on the property, it can hit rent control, right? So you want to know your local laws on if rent control is going to be a factor. But if, if you're saying Section 8 will pay 24, their current rents are 1400 and their private pay. If, if Section 8 is 24, have you done your rent box study to see is the area average above or below that? Because it can be either. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you figure out what that average is. I take about 10% off. So if you did the study and you found that 24% was, was the area average, would a little less than 2200 make sense? Yeah. Right? Maybe, yeah. maybe even closer to 2000. Yeah, I look for this all the time. This is one of the things I try to do, and, and, and Matt calls it the rent box, but I'm always looking for an angle, right? I, everybody should know by now I'm a cheap son of a gun. I try to only get great deals, and one of the ways you get great deals is by understanding or, what rents could be. And um, yeah, that would be some, that would be a deal I would sniff at, assuming the price point was right, right? If I can buy existing 14 and then get it north of two, yeah, you better believe I would poke at that. Uh, so we got a question from Devo. Uh, basically saying that he wants to put some some notes in a self-management contract saying he wants to change AC filters once a month, check for water leaks. Basically what he's doing is he wants to get in once a month to make sure the tenant's not damaging the property. Um, 
So do you do anything like that? How do you, how do you make sure your tenants aren't trashing it, even though they're paying rent? First couple of years, I, I did a, a strategy like that with, I, so I don't have very many HVAC systems. So there was always a reason at least once a year to get in the property to, to look at something. Yeah, this is once a month, just to be clear. Right, right. So that's what I was going to clarify. One, once mm -hmm. a year to me was not excessive, but it, it ended up being more than I even wanted to do. I will have handymen give me reports on anything safety. So anywhere where I have banisters or steps to get in and out of a, a house. Um, <clears throat> water leaks, I'm concerned about and one want to know. And so I tell my tenants that, that that's the first thing I want to know if there's any water leak damage. But as far as damage to the property, I honestly, I don't care what happens inside. I have a tenant that has every single door has holes punched in it and taped over it. And I've offered, say, I, I, I'm, I'm going to replace the doors. It'll come you know, out of the deposit money. I'm even going to charge the tenant cash right now or come out of the deposit. It's just, nope. My kids will just make the holes again when they're done. So when that tenant moves out, I know that much work is going to need to be done. doesn't matter if I replaced it now and she lived there another five years and I would do it again. When she moves out, that's when I'll do it. I don't care about the damage. The outside, if it impacts the, the other tenants on a duplex, if the other side sees a messy yard, yes, I would take action on that. Uh, so I don't go in for inspections. The HVAC is a good one. I would recommend go in once a year, drop off the filters for the other quarters, not monthly maybe, but quarters, and do the filters that way. Have your handymen do it. But I also have, whenever handymen go to do any kind of maintenance at a property, if they see anything out of place, they'll send me a picture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can tell you that once a month's not going to work, your tenants will revolt. Uh, they will understand what's going on. Uh, this is a customer service business. Um, you know, I think I, I, you know, if you did anything more than six months, that could be a problem. I mean, if I were going to do it at six months, I would do smoke detectors. Probably it, it filters are fine as well. Um, much like Dion, right. I, as long as there's health and safety covered and the outside is okay. You know, I just move forward. I, I trust me, your tenants are going to lose their mind if you butt in every once a month uh, and they will leave. And of course, tenant turnover is what kills landlords long-term. Uh, so I don't, I would not recommend it, but I don't self-manage. All right. What do we got? That was Devo's next question. Would you self-manage your first rental? Uh, would I? I mean, that. Again, I don't invest in my local market. I might try it, like I said earlier, in Vegas. Uh, late, you know, once we get there and get planted, and you know, do the one rental at a time thing. I might give it a shot just because. Um, but when I was working, I didn't want that headache. Even if I was, even if I lived in Fresno, I would have had managers since day one. My job was to sell a shit ton of software, and I didn't want to get, to get distracted. Um, so while I was building my career, no, I would have. I would have always had property manager. So I like, uh, um, I know you're not your favorite person, but Brandon Turner actually makes a point often of outsourcing your lowest income jobs, right? So if, if, you, if you can mow your lawn, the amount of time that you spend doing that, you can pay somebody $20 an hour to do that. And you're inside looking at properties making a $10,000 an hour decision versus a $20 an hour mow your lawn. Mm -hmm. So would you have property management? When I was making $17 an hour, it made sense for me to manage my properties because I could generate money by managing my properties. If I had an income in the six figures in a sales position like you had where you could make more money at work, property management made sense. The thing to think about, Devo, is if you have high income, 
property management probably makes sense. If you have average or lower income, I think self-managing makes sense because property managers make more on your property than you do. Yeah. That's how much you can increase the revenue from your rentals. And when you're making six figures plus multiple six figures at your job, the difference between 200 or $400 a month on your rental isn't worth your time. But mm -hmm. when you're making, the, you, know, you can save $1,000 a month basically and you can add another two hundred dollars to that by doing it yourself. Now it totally makes sense. Totally agree. Uh, Jason asked if I'm still using postcards. Uh, my team is. I am not doing one personally. Um, we did. We did some some postcards out. I think it was gosh, eighteen months ago. Uh, that obviously was a very hot market. Uh, didn't get a lot of traction, frankly. Uh, I am not personally doing any, but my team around me is definitely marketing. Some are doing creative financing sub two stuff. Some are doing. Uh, luxury, uh, looking for pain there. And, um, you know, Jason Pritchard does $15,000 a month in mailers. Uh, and he's been doing that for four years plus. So they still work. Uh, I am personally not doing it at this point. Uh, Matt asked if I've had any insulting uh, offers accepted uh, recently. Uh, I actually think the deal that Olivia and I got on our brand new home was an insulting offer. Everybody told me, uh, you couldn't get a builder to discount a home in today's market. Uh, and I almost believed him. Uh, but I am who I am. Uh, so I wrote it, I wrote an offer to Lennar for a property they had listed roughly at 1.2. Uh, I wrote it at a million bucks. That's where this started. So that's, I don't know, 15% off. Uh, they came back and countered at um I think the first counter was one, one, two. Uh, I said, no, a million bucks. Then they went to 1.9, 1.09. I came up to a million 50. They said, yes. Uh, that's just the price. But then I said, I also need 30 year money at 4.99. Lennar has to spend five points on the back end to get me to that rate. Then I said, I'm not done yet. I want 20 grand. They said, you can have 10 for non-recurring closing costs. So I got a builder to sell me a gorgeous house for 12 or 13% off. I got a crazy 30-year interest rate that you can't get today. And I got 10 grand in closing costs. I consider that an insulting offer, um, frankly. So I agree. And you got it through. Um, in a time when everybody says you just can't, I did the same on a smaller scale. I uh, saw a property; it was it originally listed at five hundred thousand. It's a duplex in an area where they're going for seven. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I realized one side is a rehab. They dropped to four seventy-seven after a hundred days on market. At several, well, I say several, two other investors that I talked to said they, they would totally pay 450. So they're going to wait and see how far down it goes. I offered four. They countered with 444. Mm. So I offered four. Mm -hmm. And they countered with 422. And I offered four. And then I made an offer on another property. So I called in the, my agent and I said, hey, tell them we're canceling my offer because I've got, an, I got a 390 accepted on a different property. Mm -hmm. uh, and they say they called back and they said, well, if your four still stands, we'll take it. And so I closed at four, which is 20% off of the 500 mm -hmm. original. 
Um, there were several investors, that, the, the contractors that have come and estimate, they, they, they would have, every one of them, everybody that invested in this area would have bought this for four or more, but didn't think that the seller would go that low. I'm telling you, that's one of the key things. You got to know where we are in the market. And, and we're heading into the slow season. Like we talked about on the daily financial news today, June 30th is an important date in the calendar year because it gets slower from here. So watch properties that are on the market. You know, Dion was looking at 100 days. I would tell you to start looking at 60 days. And write the damn offer. If you know your numbers and it's a great deal, write the offer. And oh, by the way, celebrate writing the offer. I am here to teach you, talk about, motivate, to get you to write the offer. I can't guarantee the seller will say yes. Saying yes is, is the cherry on top. If you write great offers, it's simply a numbers game. It will happen. What do you think, Dion? You, this, we're at the only point in time, I think, in, in the last decade where you can identify a motivated seller. Exactly. I think for a while they might take an offer and you have no idea if they were motivated or not because they were just getting a price they wanted. Now, if they ignore you, they're not motivated. <laughs> if they counter going higher, then they're not motivated. But so here's a here's the behind the scenes thing. I don't know if I've shared this with you. So I was doing the research on this duplex and it was a really, if they ever watch this content, thank you for being bad at your job. The listing yeah. was horrible. Couldn't tell if it was a duplex, couldn't tell if it had du dual meters, couldn't tell if there were two points, two different sets of entrance and exit. I couldn't tell anything from the listing. Mm. The word duplex was used once in the middle of a long paragraph. Mm. So I called the utility companies and I said, hey, is this, is this, you know, is separate two units? And the gas company says, well, if you're not the owner, I can't share that. But I can't, and this is where it was funny. They can share me that it was shut off for non-payment in February. Yeah, there you go. So I was like, oh, they're having money problems. Yeah. Stick to my guns on my offer. Don't change. They, they will they will cave. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So one of the things we got in here is, uh, I think you've done this in the past. I know I have. Uh, we purchased properties that have large square footage and small number of bedrooms. Um, when do you look at adding a, a bedroom and when do you look at pulling permits to add said bedroom? So the, I went to the city. Uh, if you're doing siding in the, in the areas where I invent, there's one city. If you're doing an 18 inch drywall repair, it takes a permit. Nice. So don't invest. And I want to name them by name, but don't invest in Lakewood, Washington. Got it. The other areas, it's literally the siding where I'm at. If it's under a thousand square feet, no permit needed to pull and replace siding. If you're adding uh, a framed out wall, uh, they said permit is not required. If you're moving an existing wall, permit is required because it has exactly. to have a professional determine if it's a load bearing or not. You can't just look at it yourself and think, oh, I don't think it is. Um, and if you're doing anything with windows where the header is going to be moved, you have to pull yep. permits. There's kind of each city has a different go in and just yeah, go to the counter and say, look, I, I want to do things legally. What are my requirements for pulling permits? Find out what is required there. And then go to contractors in your area and ask, what is the city to work with on the timeline? Yeah, I, I've got a city where it was nine months to get some approvals. And the place that I'm at now to have a, I'm having a tree removed and I'm doing uh, a reframing of a wall with headers. Permits were same day. Like I walked out approval, like, Okay, so some each area is different. 
Yeah, I would definitely take the time to go see the city. Generally speaking, if you're moving walls, moving electrical, moving windows, permit. If you're simply going in and going, huh, all I need to do is add a wall and a door. In many mark, many areas, not. But yeah, generally speaking, moving a wall, moving electrical, moving windows, uh, you're going to require a permit. Uh, but if you're, you know, in many areas, if you're just adding a wall and a door, um, I do not believe most people, most areas will have that. But again, know your area for sure. And one last thing on permits that some people might not be aware is your city handles permits for things like framing, um, tree removal. But if you're going to do anything with electric, that's L&I in a lot of areas. Labor and Industries will approve that. Um, so know where to go to get your permits. Uh Jesse asked, hey, I've been putting in the work, trying to find a deal in my market, Raleigh, Chapel Hill, uh, for a few months now, but nothing is cash flowing. Have an opportunity to flip a house, go for it, or search even wider. What do you think, Jesse? Or what do you think, Dion? Uh, it, depending on your experience, Jesse, I'm not sure. I don't think we're in the market to make flipping very uh, easy for the newer investor. I think somebody with skills and a team in place, if you've been flipping houses, you can continue to do it and make money. But for a decade, we've had an uptrending appreciation market with a downtrending interest rate market. And you can make huge mistakes in timeline and repair costs. And the market fixed your mess ups. Yeah. That's not happening now. Uh, when you say nothing cash flows, the, the shift in the last couple of years, so for, so for three or four years of investing, I, I wanted to have offers in. So 2020, I had two properties. 2021, I bought one. It was because I was fast. I, right. I had my offer in within one or two hours of it hitting the MLS pre-approval letter uh, or pre-qualification letter, whichever one, and uh, offer submitted before the owners realized they were going to get inundated with a whole bunch mm -hmm. of over-asking, waiving contingencies, naming your baby after the seller, that whatever it took to get the deal, uh, that's changed. The metric that we're watching now is days on market, because now right. what we're saying is the longer it's been on the market the more ridiculously low insulting offer we can make with the chance of it getting accepted. Both of us just gave examples of, we watched, you watch the market for what's going on with sellers, uh, builders. I watch the market for what's going on with people who have something that they can't sell for whatever reason, make an offer that makes sense to you. So if in your market, nothing's cash flowing, Jesse, look at long days on market and make a stupid offer that would cash flow. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, none of almost none of the properties I bought cash flowed at list price. I was always writing offers that made sense. That's the magic of the course one rental at a time is um, you know the number that works and you stick to your guns and it's a numbers game. Uh, if I was starting out again and I had a full-time job and my goal was to build a portfolio of rentals, but I thought I found a property to flip, I wouldn't flip it. I had a day job, flipping is a job, too many risk factors, time can get away. Quick way to lose money. I have professionals on my channel. Frankly, three of the millionaires that come back and talk to you every week, flip homes is their pr primary income. All three of them lost six figures uh, in Q1 uh, because the market changed. Uh, not something I would generally recommend. Jesse does follow up saying, hey, if my long-term rentals can't rent, should I do short-term dailies or maybe medium, you know, the traveling nurse stuff? What do you think about that, Dion? If your long-term doesn't rent, the strategy I would consider would be by the room, depending on bedroom to bathroom ratio count. Short-term takes more work than 
uh, I'm sorry, midterm takes more work than short term. Most of us have that wrong in our heads. With short term, you, you have people reaching out to you and you're filtering through them. With midterm, you're trying to find and screen tenants. So the people that I know that have midterm and short term, the short term is, is less work. So which one are you wanting to do more work in? Yeah. Are you going to self-manage or use property management? Because that can impact the profit that you're expecting from short term. What's going on with legislation in your area for short term? Uh, we've got Vegas, <clears throat> part of Texas, eliminating short-term rentals. Mm -hmm. uh, there are ongoing legislation with hotel chains that have billions of dollars trying to stop short-term rentals. Uh, so I would consider all of that before I shifted. How are rents, how are your rents comparing to area average? Consider the binder strategy to say, get, get the rents where they need to be to where maybe they will cash flow. Uh, and hopefully this is not the case, but stop looking at your properties like a piggy bank. And, mm -hmm. and remember that every time somebody says, how do I tap my equity? Mm -hmm. Equity, let's replace the word equity with the ability to add debt to an existing asset. So a lot of people are pulling money to buy properties and then wondering why they have no cash flow or yeah. like Norris Drive, creating an sure. alligator. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, Scott asked a good question. Hey, I'm trying to, uh, how do I know when to trust the math? I'm finding huge yields according to my Excel but struggling to trust the estimates, rent values, uh, and likelihood for long-term rent. How do you trust the math? So uh, I'm one of the teaching assistants for the Bigger Pockets boot camps, and this is this is not in their this is not in their training. This is something that I add to it in my office hours on Saturdays. When you get to the point of running the numbers, like there's a weekly there's a module where we really go how do you analyze a property. A lot of people talk about running the numbers and using spreadsheets. And, and the one thing I really like about taking the one rental at a time course is the way you talk about putting a rental or putting a property in a spreadsheet like six times and changing one mm -hmm. element to see what happens to the yield. Yep. Here's my method for a brand new investor to figure out how to get your confidence in your ability to run the numbers. And, and remember four words, confidence comes from competence. So you wanna get competent at the skill so you're confident in your abilities. Find an investor that you know and interact with, local REI meetup or, or your, your group that you talk to, whatever, who has rentals, and tell them, I would like to do an exercise where I run the numbers on your rental, and then you tell me how close I am. You don't have to share your exact numbers with me, but tell me how close I am. Am I off mark? Let me know your address. I'll do the rent study. I'll show you what I came up with, and then you show me how close I even am. If you do, you, when you practice on a known, you will create memories that you, you, you will use in future equations to make it much simpler. Uh, yeah. I, the whole deal of the spreadsheet is to give you the skill to learn. But don't forget what we also talk about in the course. You got to meet two new people a week and double check the numbers, right? I, I've been very clear for the first five years, certainly four years, I lived in the Excel spreadsheet and that is a problem. That is a mistake. Get out, talk to people, Zoom with them, show them what you're doing, validate stuff. You know, if, if you were doing the math, I mean, if I were doing the math in Fresno and something came back at 33%, for example, I would check the math because something's broken in the math, right? If I've been looking at Fresno for 20 years and I know the numbers are somewhere between, you know, negative five and 11, and I saw a 33, I would check my spreadsheet. Somewhere in the spreadsheet, broken a cell got copied. But if you're in the beginning and you don't know that, you know, you, you've got to go talk to people. Either your rent's wrong, your expenses are wrong, or, you know, maybe your mortgage payment's not calculated correctly. There's lots of things it could be. 
Um, but yeah, when in doubt, talk to people would be what I would do. What else do we got? Let's see, only got a couple of minutes left, folks. If you have a burning desire for a question, I suggest a super chat. Otherwise, I may not get to it. Oh, 98, this is from Brandon. 98% of the deals in my market don't really work long-term, no matter what they offer. That changes dramatically with some of the same properties when rent by the room. So that's a strategy I am exploring. I would recommend checking out, um, and I hate my memory. He lives in Seattle. He's a bit on your channel. He's awesome. The millennial millionaire. Uh, Todd Baldwin. Todd Baldwin, right. I can't believe his name just flipped out of my head. Um, rent by the room, some great strategies on how to handle common areas, uh, ways to keep tenant turnover low, uh, really great strategies on renting by the room. If that's going to be the strategy you pursue, know your local laws. There are some uh, municipalities where uh, it's still 1940 and they only let so many unrelated adults reside in one building. Yeah. Uh, make sure you're not in one of those places if that's what you're looking at doing. All right. What else do we got? You see any other questions you want us to jump in? Um, when in doubt, let's go back to the Facebook group and see what's there. If the over under on the leaning millennium tower of San Francisco falling over in 15 years, are you taking over or under? Do you think San Francisco? I think it's failed over. I think it flopped on its face, but is, do you have 15 years left there? No. So he's talking about there's a specific building that, um, oh, that okay. was I thought they were talking about the market of San Francisco. No. Yeah, that's dead. Yeah, no, the market's in trouble. No, so there's a building. I forget what it's called. It's luxury condo towers. Um, it's right. It's a beautiful building, at least from the outside. It's actually leaning. I think it's it's like, I don't know. It was, it was measured in millimeters, but still leaning. And and, uh, yeah. So what was the question? Is it going to basically fall over in 15 years or it, less? Over and under for 15 years. And and I'll share after you after you say your answer. We have something very similar in Washington. I'll go, oh, wow. So here's a problem, right? I've lived in California my whole life, and we have these nasty things called earthquakes. And you get one of those Loma Prietas, which was the scariest thing I've ever been through. That's 7-1. That would be a problem, I would suspect. I'm no engineer, but that would be a problem. I don't know. I don't want to guess. There's a lot of people that live there. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my answer to the grave. I'm, I'll take the fifth. So in Washington, we have this thing that you can Google called the tree of life. So major ravine, probably mm -hmm. 50 feet on each side. Okay. Tree fell over. The roots caught, lifted it back up. So the tree's standing. You can walk under the full root system, all exposed, but it's on both sides. And there's the, the same thing on the website, over under how many years do you think it's going to be until it finally falls? Uh, so not quite the building structure, but that's a good comparison of California to Washington. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like exactly. Physical man-made structure. When is it going to die versus nature? There you go. Uh, what do you think about CDs at 5%? What are you thinking? Uh, so I did a video, a live stream. I probably um, should cut out the first section because it's shorter than the live stream answered a bunch of questions on 5% CD, bond, treasure. It doesn't matter what it is. But I went like this. I said 10% versus 5% cash on cash with a rental. Because 
the 10 percent let's, let's double the five percent cd let's get it goes to 10 percent. you can get 10 percent with a cd that is taxed right and you're only getting 10 percent on what you put in so i i buy a rental where i get a five percent cash on cash return where i get 10 so i'm cutting mine in half of what i actually get mm -hmm. but now i'm getting appreciation on four times what i put in because i use a mortgage so that's actually mm -hmm. if it goes up five percent the historical normal for appreciation not these 20 and 30 that we've been seeing for two years about five percent that's a 20% increase to the money that I put in instead of the 10%. Mm -hmm. and then with depreciation and write-offs, there's tax benefits. The tenants pay off the mortgage. So if I can get a 10% CD and a 5% yield with real estate, I'm still a real estate guy. Oh yeah. That doesn't mean I might not go CD if I'm hunting for a deal and I plan on making my next purchase in a year. Great place to park it so you get better than nothing. But right now you can get 5, 4.15% uh, with an Apple savings account. Yep. So not locking up your money, getting really close to that 5%. So short term, sure. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's where, you know, park your money where you have easy access to it, hunting deals, cash flow, emergency funds, go get those interest rates where, where this really becomes a problem is, um, frankly, it's the syndicators, right? There's a bunch of people who over the last three or four years got really good at raising money and they were basically offering in buying properties at three and a half, four caps. But if you take the risk adjusted return from zero to five, it's going to get a lot harder to raise money. And it's going to get a lot harder to ask for money because we've already seen funds do um, capital calls. Uh, so at the end of the day, Dion's right. Uh, I'm a real estate guy. I buy a great deal in my market, uh, but I do keep money in high interest savings accounts. It will really hurt the syndicators. Uh, because again, the risk-free rate of return is now five, uh, which is going to mean they're 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 in trouble. Uh, Before we mm -hmm. um, do this, I'm going to turn my camera off for a second on purpose. Actually, it oh. won't work. I don't think my camera will show outside very well. I'm going to try. I have no idea what Dion's about to do. I think he's going to show the view. Maybe he has. Camera's off. So okay. I don't know about you all, but I'm curious where Dion's going with this Dion's magic trick. Oh, look at this. Oh, that's annoying. Oh. <laughs> Mute. Oh, well. All right. Well, let's keep going while he gets back inside. The suspense. I think he was showing us his view, but I don't know why my voice was doing that. Let's see. Nope. Some kind of loop. Ah, what's going on? We got insurance. Oh, yeah. Spencer Cornelia in Vegas is doing uh, room by rent as well. Oh, he's back. Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Nope. All right. I got a crazy loop of my voice saying Dion's going, Dion's going. So uh, we tried something, folks. Thank you for being here. Uh, I want to wish you all a happy July 4th. Go make some memories, take some pictures, see some fireworks. Be careful. Don't hurt yourself. 
folks, take care. This is one rinse a at a time with his good friend, Dion. Thanks, buddy, for coming.